I am sure that each of you heard the following words at some point from your parents, like I did on num numerous occasions. When are you going to learn to stand on your own two feet? And hopefully by this point, you're not hearing it still, although you may occasionally. But what our parents meant by that when they said those words was, when are you going to learn to be somewhat independent? When are you going to learn to be independent and take control of your own life in whatever arena that they were addressing? Tonight we're going to speak about independence, and there are generally speaking three categories of independence. There are generally three areas in which we want to have independence, and it's a good thing to have independence. And those areas are financial, financial independence, there is emotional independence, and intellectual independence. By no means are we going to exhaust all three tonight, and we're not really going to deal with the first one. This is not a class to teach you how to go make money. <laughs> but nonetheless, we will see that that idea of being financially independent is something that Judaism says is important. The Talmud actually says that it's greater for one to live off the work of his own or her own hands than to live off the community's funds. Better that you should go and earn your own living. That there's a certain sense of um, identity that comes with a level of financial independence. But what we'll also see, hopefully by the end of tonight's discussion, is that financial independence will affect a person really depending on how much independence they have in the other two arenas. Before we move on, as always, we need to start with a definition. So what is financial independence? If we can define financial independence, it'll be easier for us to define the others. So what's the definition of independence? In other words, to not depend, to not rely, to not need the financial support of others. That's what the word independence means. To not be dependent, to not need or rely on others. So financial independence is simply that I have enough financial means to not need other financial support. Well, what's intellectual independence and emotional independence? So we're going to speak first and foremost about intellectual independence. Even though that is one that in life comes later, it's not the first one that we should have in life, but everyone here is older now, and hopefully that one is more, um, more relevant than the emotional independence, although the emotional independence is probably just as prevalent in our lives. Intellectual independence would be what? If financial independence is the ability to financially support myself, to not rely on others, what would intellectual independence be? Independent of the intellect of others. In, okay, meaning what? Being able to think for yourself. There you go. Intellectual independence is the ability to have one's own clarity and convictions and not rely on others. 
One of the very first things the Torah teaches us about Abraham is the idea that we need to have intellectual independence. So much of our view of life, so much of the way we look at the world in terms of values, in terms of right and wrong, in terms of goals, is based on so many other factors other than our own intellectual independence, than our own clarity in our convictions. And that's why the Torah tells us that God comes to Abraham and says that if you're going to build this nation, if you're going to be the father of the nation that stands for meaning and values, then the first thing you must do is have a level of intellectual independence. And when telling us that, the Torah delineates three areas in which we get bombarded and we get our ideas shaped. And those are, first and foremost, our family. When we grew up, we were nurtured and our outlook of life was shaped and molded by our family and the way we grew up in that home. The second area that we get this is from not just our family, but the society in which we grew up in. The society that we grew up in, you know, most children actually get more of a shaping of their outlook on life from their friends and from their school than they do from their home anymore. It's now so much is being thrown on them from so many external factors that parents have somewhat of a, of a small role although very important role. And we'll actually mention that later. And then the third area in which affects the way we look at life is just whatever culture and society we're living in currently. Our peer-based group is constantly shaping the way we look at the world. And the reason that we have to understand why that is so important is because without the clarity of knowing that our convictions are so much being influenced by these external forces, we will actually be unable to make decisions without question, with questioning them to see if they're right or wrong. There's a famous test that was done by a professor, Stanley Milgram. I believe it was Yale University. I always get Yale and Stanford mixed up, but I'm pretty sure it was Yale. And if anyone here actually went to either one of those, <laughs> forgive me because I know that's a rivalry. But I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, this study. It's an amazing study. Did I mention this study to you before? Is anyone familiar with it? It's an amazing study, Professor Stanley Milgram. And this study happened right around the time of the Nuremberg trials. And I probably just gave that away as to what the study was about. But he did the following experiment. He went on campus and he went up to students and asked them, would they like to participate in a university-approved study? That was what he asked them. And he, if they said yes, he would take them into a room where they would be told that there's another subject on the other side of the glass who has been hooked up to an electrical um, voltage unit and has been given a list of questions and answers to memorize. And every time you ask them a question, if they get the answer wrong, you're going to hit the button, send electrical shocks into them, and after each one the voltage will be turned up. 
The student that was on the other side of the glass was an actor, was not a student in the participation of the study, but was actually in our participation on the professor's side. And there was no electrical shock being run through, but there was pre-recorded screams and electrical noises to the extent that the participants would hit the voltage so often that 65% of the students being studied hit the final lethal voltage. What was the experiment really about? Clearly it had nothing to do with memory and pain. That's what they were told. We're doing a study to see the correlation between memory and pain response. Clearly that was not the experiment. What was the experiment? See how far you push the boundary of like hurting someone? In the shape of what? I mean, how far you'd go to hurt somebody? I mean, it depends. How far would you go to hurt somebody if your life was in danger? <laughs> you might go pretty far. I don't know if that's a... That's a but you're right, but you're missing half the study. Kind of following along, just as if someone, like, would you do anything for that person because they told you to? How far will you go when you're faced with a position of authority telling you so? Remember, the question was, would you like to participate in a university-approved study? Well, the university says it's okay. must be okay. Leadership's telling you. Because the question at the time was, is it really possible that Eichmann and everybody else in the Nuremberg trials could keep giving the same answer? And what was the same answer that they kept giving in these trials? I was only, I was only following orders. I was only following orders. I was only doing what I was told. And if we don't appreciate how powerful that is, it is so powerful that students were willing to push an electrical voltage sending 450 volts into a person simply because a professor asked him to. That is so ingrained in us that if we don't appreciate how powerful that is, we will never question our own looks and, out, uh, and values. We will never question our outlook on life. Why do I say this is the way life is supposed to be? Why do I say that this is right? Do I say this is right simply because society told me so? Do I say this is true simply because that's the way I grew up, but if I grew up somewhere else, I would have an entirely different set of values? If I grew up south of the Mason-Dixon line prior to the Civil War, I would think that slavery is absolutely a necessity of economics, but if I grew up north of the Mason-Dixon line, I would think that slavery is abhorrent? Or is it simply because people north of the Mason-Dixon line just didn't need that for their economic stability? Is it really that people north of the Mason-Dixon line had the moral upground and the people below were just despicable human beings? Or is it simply that their economic reality told them that this was okay? And if you were born in Iraq, prior to 30 years ago, you would have a sworn enemy of an Iranian. And if you were born in Iran, you would have a sworn enemy of, of an Iraqi. And it wouldn't matter if it was your first cousin. Is that where we get our notion of right and wrong? Or do we have the ability to stop and remove ourselves from all of these influences and stop and ask ourselves, 
how do I know what I'm saying is true? How do I have clarity in my convictions? And realize that having clarity in your convictions, having an understanding of the reason I believe what I believe, the reason I look at life this way is because I have clarity, not because of anything outside of myself, but rather because of myself, then I have the power and the ability and the independence to stand up against all forces that tell me I'm crazy. Albert Einstein, when he came out with his theory that light bent in space, there was no way to measure if he was correct. It was a theory. And when they wheeled out a telescope that was powerful enough finally to measure, to see if he was right, reporters turned to him and asked him, what will you say if when they look in the telescope and they don't see the light bend? And you know what his reported response was? They'll need to make a more powerful telescope. <laughs> Why? Because I know I'm right. Don't tell me what the... I know I'm right. I've got clarity and conviction, and the whole world can tell me I'm crazy, but I know I'm right. And that is crucial for our independence, to have clarity and conviction. Clarity is the first and foremost key thing in life. It is the most important ingredient to living life because the goal of life is to have wisdom. Because everything stems from wisdom. We cannot have wisdom without clarity. And clarity leads to conviction, and conviction is where we get a sense of independence. That's intellectual independence. What I suggest in order to get that is sit down with a piece of paper, or nowadays I'm starting to date myself to say a piece of paper, but someone's actually taking notes on paper. You sit down with some type of instrument, whether it's a writing instrument or a recording instrument nowadays, you can say anything, and make a list of 20 things that you say are true in your life. 20 convictions that you have, 20 outlooks of life values. And then ask yourself the following, why do I say this is true? Do I say this is true simply because society's told me this? Do I say this is true because my family has told me this? Do I say this is true because I understand this to be true? And in order to do that, what we have to have is definitions. Because in life, we throw words around. We constantly throw words around. Words like, I believe, I know, I'm sure, I'm positive. Oh, you just have faith, you don't really know. So, there's all kinds of terms that we throw around, but for tonight we're going to focus on three. Faith, belief, and knowledge. Faith, belief, and knowledge. And when we make a list of the things that we say are our convictions, our list of values that we hold to be true, we should hope that as many as possible should be in the categorization of knowledge and very few of them should be relegated to faith, if any at all. And a few can be put into belief. 
So what's the difference? Knowledge is a statement said to be true based upon evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And clearly, we can live in a philosophical realm and talk about the notion of whether or not this is all a dream and whether or not this is just some figment of some imaginary situation created by some being outside of this world. That's all nice in theory. At the end of the day, not a single human being makes decisions based on the possibility that that is true. Even if you actually think that that's true, you will never make a decision as such. None of us will do like they did in the Matrix and go and jump and run off a building, run and jump off a building, and assume that we're going to bounce when we hit the cement because we will it to be, because this is all fake anyway. Now, yes, if you take some you know, type of drug or something or substance that will make you think that you might actually do it. But no one in their sane state of mind will make a decision based on that. So that's why I say reasonable doubt. A statement said to be true based on evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. So therefore, I know I'm here. I know that you are here. I know that Australia exists, even though I've never been there. I know that the moon exists, even though there's a movie called The Truman Show where maybe this is a big old bubble. <laughs> maybe this is a bubble. Maybe that is just a projected image up there. I know that man put a spaceship out there and landed on the moon. Is it possible that O.J. Simpson was in a movie portraying a true story? Yes, it's possible, but it's beyond a reasonable doubt. There are other things that I know. None of those things that I listed are convictions. Convictions are such that I know that the greatest gift that a human being has is free will. I know I have free will. I don't believe it. I don't want it. I don't have faith. I know it. I know I have free will. That's a conviction. So you should make a list of convictions and then say, okay, do I know them? Now I have the definition of knowledge. What's belief? Belief is a statement said to be true based on evidence, but there is a reasonable doubt. There's evidence, but there's doubt as well. So, for example, I believe, I believe that everything that happens is for the best in my life. I believe that. I believe that the Messiah will come one day and the world will be in a state of utopia. I don't know that, but I believe it. There's definitely doubt, and it's a reasonable doubt, but I have evidence of both of those things. Then there is faith. Faith is a statement, a statement said to be true because I want it to be true. Faith is a statement said to be true because I want it to be true. I have a desire that it's so. And the evidence is irrelevant, even if the evidence is contrary to that statement said to be true. I could have evidence to the contrary. It doesn't matter. I want it to be true. I desire it to be so. 
Hence the phrase blind faith, because faith requires us to just say, no, no, I don't care about the evidence. When someone comes to you and says, hey, I've got this great tip in the stock market, all I need is 50 grand, and you will have a return of three times that amount in two weeks. This person has never given you a stock tip before in your life. This person has no experience whatsoever in investments, and yet there are plenty of people that will hand that person $50,000. Why? Because they want it to be true. There are plenty of people that buy a lottery ticket, such as myself, and are shocked when they don't win. Even though, statistically speaking, an evidence suggests that there is no way you're going to win. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> I want to win. It's irrelevant what the evidence is. My suggestion is you should make a list. And you should go through and see. Do I know this to be true? Do I believe this to be true? Do I have faith that this is true? That is how we create a level of intellectual independence. Otherwise, if we never do that exercise, if we never actually go through the process of getting clarity, then we are relegated to nothing other than being dependent on outside forces telling us how to look at life. And those outside forces can be anything from simply the way we grew up, and therefore we don't even realize that we are being subjected to that because it's such an ingrained part of us, or something as so blatantly obvious as media telling us how to look at the world. But yet, we are being influenced. And without that level of independence, there's no way to stand up against it. That's intellectual independence. There's another independence that we mentioned that I think is far more pervasive in terms of the way it affects us, the way it affects the way we look at life, the way it affects the way we relate to the world, and the way we react to everything else around us. And that's emotional independence. Emotional independence is so crucial to life. Emotional independence, as you can figure out by now, is I don't rely on others emotionally. But emotionally for what? What does that mean, I don't rely on others emotionally? Of course we rely on others emotionally. I mean, we all do. We all go through situations where we need other people to come and hug us, hold our hand, and just be with us, and to support us. So what does it mean to be emotionally independent? It cannot be just simply that I don't rely on others emotionally, because that's not true. You don't let them dictate emotions. No. Well, you don't let their emotions, well, yeah, I guess yeah. their emotions dictate how you feel about... So I would say that, that might be true, but that's going to be a result of what real emotional independence is. What real emotional independence is, I don't rely on others to validate my existence. Mm. I don't rely on others for my self-worth. I don't rely on others to tell me that I'm good, that I'm worthy, that I'm special. 
That is emotional independence. That I have the ability to basically, like Whitney Houston said, <laughs> have the greatest love of all. To love myself. That is what emotional independence is. To be able to love myself. That sense of self-worth, that sense of identity and self-image is so crucial to life. Everyone knows that when dealing with children, teens, adolescents, and young adults, even sometimes into adulthood, people with low self-image, they are literally dying going through life. They're dying. Low self-image can destroy a person. And so the ability to actually be in love with myself is crucial. And that is why the Hebrew word for mother is ima. But the root of that word is aim, aleph, mem. And the rabbis tell us that why is a mother called ima? Why is she called aim? Because she is the aleph, mem. The aleph is the first, and the mem stands for belief. She is the first that gives a child belief. And it's not just belief in the Creator. It's not belief in Hashem. You know what it is? It's the belief in themselves. It's the belief in themselves to know that, wow, my mother loves me. I'm special. I'll go on record here as a crucial mistake that I make. I have a child that I like to point out it's definitely a mistake. I know it's a flaw in my parenting skills. That's why I don't teach parenting classes. I teach other classes. <laughs> but I sometimes point out her, her girth. Well, she's still only two. <laughs> <laughs> and I like to call her my walrus. <laughs> <laughs> and so she now starts to say to me, I'm not a walrus. <laughs> and it's so cute that I keep saying it now just to hear her say that. But she knows she's not a walrus and she smiles when she says it because there is like a little cute repertoire that we have with each other on it now. But she has self-worth. Why? Because her mother loves her beyond anything else in the world. It's just, ah, oh, that's my baby. The mother gives a child a sense of, I love you, and therefore you have worth. To know that someone believes in me, to know that someone believes in us, gives us such a sense of confidence. It gives us such an ability to tackle the world. There's a famous rabbi called Rabbi Akiva. If you never heard of him, you should familiarize yourself with his life and with his wife <laughs> because his wife was an incredibly special woman. Rabbi Akiva lived in the Roman Empire's time. He was an ignoramus until he was 40 years old, never studied a day in his life, never learned a day in his life till he was 40 years old. And at 40, his future wife, who was the daughter of his employer, said to him, if you go and learn, I will marry you. Because she saw greatness in him. She saw potential. And she said, if you go and learn, I will marry you. And 
She was the daughter of one of the wealthiest people alive at the time. She was the daughter of Bill Gates of that generation. And her father said to her, if you marry him, because he was the stable boy. Was, you know, this is the old, uh, you know, the princess bride, you know, the stable boy story. That, that's where it comes from. They stole it all from us. She said to him, oh, they stole it all from us. That she said, I will marry you. I will marry you. And the father said, I will disown you if you marry him. And she said, I don't care. I see greatness. I see greatness. And so Rabbi Akiva was thinking about this proposition. And that's a whole other story why he actually listened. But he saw water trickling. And he said to the following, you know, he saw that the water had trickled over a rock and had bored a hole in the rock. And so he said the following, if water, which is soft, has the power to bore a hole in a rock which is hard, then imagine what wisdom, which is compared to fire, the wisdom of Torah, which is fire, can do to my stubborn heart, which is flesh. It should be able to burn a hole right through. And so he said to her, I agree, I will do it. And so he went and learned. And he went and learned for 12 years. And he found out that his wife was so thrilled with the fact that he was learning, she said, I wish he would learn another 12 years. And so he did. And he ended up learning for 24 years. And when he returned, he went away to learn. And when he returned, he returned with 24,000 students. And when he came to his hometown, his wife, Rachel, Rachel, ran out to meet him. Now, could you imagine, you have to understand, 24,000 students. This is, a, this, is, this, is, this is a person, this is like running over to meet the president. This is like running over to meet someone of unbelievable prestige and power. You don't just run up to someone like that. So they don't know. They've been with this rabbi for 24 years. They've never met his wife. Now she comes running down the street to meet him, and they run in front to stop her. And he said the following, move aside, because everything that you have and I have is only because of her. Now you have to imagine what it must have been like for Rebbe Akiva. Think about it. He's 40 years old, and he's never learned a day in his life. He's illiterate. So where is he going to go for the first day? Where's he going to go to? He's going to go to kindergarten. He's going to go to kindergarten. He can't read. He's going to have to go to kindergarten. So here he is, a 40-year-old man in kindergarten. Now, I know this, they didn't have this back in the Roman times, but could you imagine a 40-year-old man going to kindergarten, sitting down in those little red plastic chairs, <laughs> those knees up like this? Could you imagine what the kids must have done to him? I always love, Bill Cosby's got this great comedic routine. He says, you know, people that always walk around going, oh, I just love children. I just love children because they're all so truthful and they're so sweet. And Bill Cosby says, that's a lie. Anyone who says that has no children because all you have to do is have a child to know that they are not truthful, they lie, and they are vicious. They're cruel. You know, I mean, just think back. Think back to when oh, you were... Oh, think back to when you were in elementary school. Do you remember elementary school? It's vicious. Oh, the par, the playground, what goes on out there? 
oh my gosh, you show up to school with the wrong backpack? You show up to school with the wrong shoes or the wrong sweater? Oh, they're vicious. They're cruel. And here's this 40-year-old man sitting in the little chair. They must have ridiculed him. And he goes home, and he went home, and he said, I'm not going back. And Rachel said to him, well, tell me, what happened? Well, they made fun of me. And she said, what's going to happen tomorrow? And he said, they're going to make fun of me. And she said, exactly. And what's going to happen the next day? And he said, they'll make fun of me. I don't understand the point. That's why I'm not going back. Until she said, no. Because eventually what will happen? They'll stop. Eventually they'll stop. And when they stop, then you'll be able to just move on to the next. And so he went back. And eventually they stopped. And he went on to become the great Rabbi Akiva. Do you see, the reason Rabbi Akiva was able to go on and become one of the greatest rabbis in the history of the Jewish people is because he had a wife who believed in him. He had someone who believed in him. He had someone who loved him. And that was what gave him the strength to go on. That is what gave him the ability to stand up in the face of ridicule. But do you see, what Rabbi Akiva really had was the love of Rachel gave him the ability to see something far greater. Far greater than having someone in your life that believes in you. Rabbi Akiva was able to go on and see that it's not just that Rachel believed in me, it's that the creator of the universe believes in me. Rabbi Akiva is the rabbi that taught us in the Talmud that God loves mankind. That's what it says in Perke Avos, who Rebbe Akiva taught us that. That beloved are we. That God loves us. And that's why Rebbe Akiva was able to teach us the following. That everything that happens is for the best. That's what Rebbe Akiva is teaching. Gamzu Latova. Everything that happens, kol manda ovid, rachmana latava ovid, is what Rabbi Akiva said. Everything that Hashem does is for the best. It must be. Why? Because He loves me. And it's not possible that if the Creator of the universe loves me, that it can't be for my benefit. Rabbi Akiva was able to see that because he already had the familiarity of what it meant to have someone believe in him. You imagine, I'm sure I've shared this image with you. Imagine you go on vacation. And you come back from vacation, you've been gone for a week, and you come back and you land at LAX. And you get out of the airport, you get in a taxi or your friend picks you up, whatever, and you go around the loop there, and the first billboard you see, the first billboard says, the end, welcome back to LA. We missed you. City of LA. I thought of that one. How would you have felt if you saw such a billboard? Just, you know. <laughs> feel amazing. It would be amazing. The city of LA loves me. Guess what? Every day you're supposed to wake up and say, the biggest billboard in the universe just said, welcome back. <laughs> welcome back. The fact that I'm here means the creator loves me. And therefore, that should give me the sense of self-worth 
to show you that Whitney Houston was actually wrong. The, the person who wrote that song, she didn't write it, she sang it and made it a huge hit. But the person who wrote that song is actually wrong. The greatest love of all is not to love myself. The greatest love of all is to know that God loves me. And if God loves me, I should love myself. And if God loves me, I will love myself. It's not that, oh, look how great I am. It's not arrogance and ego. It's just, I've got worth. I've got value. And therefore, it's irrelevant what the world says about me. It's irrelevant what someone said about me. It's irrelevant what someone did to me. It's irrelevant that I didn't get that recognition that I was hoping to get. Because I know that I have value. I know that I am worthy. I know I'm good. I know I'm special. That's emotional independence. And you should tell yourselves that every single day. And in your list of convictions, it should be in an area that is somewhere borderline between belief and knowledge. You can't know it without a reasonable doubt, but you can have an unbelievable amount of evidence that God loves you. And you should go through every day and just say the following. Just say the following. God loves me. That's it. And you want to know how I know God loves me? Because an unbelievable track record. Just look at all the amazing things that have happened to you in your life from birth until now. And yes, I'm sure there's an amazing list of things that you could say, yeah, but what about all those? Okay, but we're not looking at those. We're looking at the amazing list of things that God did up until now. Every single one of you is alive. Every single one of you has all of your faculties. Every single one of you has two eyes, two ears, two legs. Every single one of you has your health, as far as I know. Every single one of you has a whole list of blessings that you can stop and say, wow, that's a pretty damn good track record of gifts that Hashem did for me. And ask myself the following, what did I do to deserve them? What did I do to deserve these amazing abilities to think? to walk, to talk. What did I do to deserve to be brought up in a home with loving parents? Did I do, did I do anything to deserve that? See, the only reason that we doubt that God loves me is because we immediately look at all the things that we didn't get. We immediately look at all the things that we got that we didn't want. We immediately look at all of those and that is the challenge, to be able to realize that, look, if God loves me, there must be a reason that those things are for my best interests. I might not understand it, but it has to be. And that is what will give us this sense of independence to be able to stand up against anything, to be able to stand up against even not being financially secure. The reason that financial security plays such a weight on us 
to be able to be financially independent is because so much of our value system that we don't have intellectual independence of, so much of our value system tells us that our self-worth is dependent upon the, va- the ability to be financially independent or not. Society tells us that. And therefore, because I'm not emotionally independent, if I don't have an incredible financial independence, if I don't have a tremendous financial stability, I must be no good. I must be a failure. But to the extent that we know that that's ridiculous, to the extent that we know that, you know what, not everyone can win the lottery. Not everyone can live in Bel Air. Not everyone can afford to buy a home. That's just not a reality. That's not what it means to be a good person. That's not what it means to have worth and value. Then if we have that intellectual independence, plus the emotional stability to know that that's irrelevant, then you know what? It won't affect us as much. That's why I said at the beginning when we mentioned financial independence, much more of the weight of the financial independence has more to do with our intellectual and emotional independence than the actual bank account itself. My suggestion is that, one, do the exercise of trying to get clarity on your convictions. And then every day, remind yourself that you are emotionally independent. That yes, there'll be times that you need friends. Yes, there'll be times that you need loved ones in your life to literally hold you up, to literally stop you from collapsing and falling apart because life will throw all kinds of challenges your way. And life will throw all kinds of situations that make you question, do you have the strength to get through? And you will need that support. But those instances are actually few to the extent that you have the emotional stability to be absolutely independent throughout all the rest of life. See, those instances will crush a person if in regular life they're dependent on others. But to the extent that we're independent and we know that we're good, we know that God loves us, then when God throws us those curveballs, when God throws us those stumbling blocks and those roadblocks, you know, you wake up and you say, okay, today I'm going to be a happy person. I'm going to make the decision to be happy, and you walk out to your car and there's a parking ticket. Well, so much for that happy day. Or on the contrary. Or is that perhaps just what you needed to see? Are you really going to be happy today? And therefore, if you have that dependence, when those twists get thrown your way and you need a friend to hold you up, you'll be able to get through it. That's independence.